Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. If you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 2 as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we find that God has been displaying his character through the world he has created. He has revealed that he is a creative God who is intelligent, imaginative, and complex. He has displayed his character in making a man to be his mediator and representative over all of his creation, as we saw last week. And today, for those of you that are more softer in heart, a love story is introduced in Genesis chapter 2 as we continue with the creation story. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we'll continue. Read with me silently as I read out loud. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Father, thank you for your word that we've just read. For in it we find that it is all power. It is the words of eternity, the words of life. And I pray that now that you would, as we've read, that you would open up our hearts And may your Holy Spirit take this word this morning and plant it deep into good fertile soil. Change our hearts, if need be, to receive your word. And Lord, may we respond in a way that's glorifying to you and the way that you've intended. Let me speak words that are edifying, that are true. And Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment to know the difference between man's opinion and thoughts and the true words of God. May we apply it by the grace of the Holy Spirit and you would fill up what's ever lacking in the speaking or in the listening ability that we have today. We pray this in the name of your Son, who's made all things possible, we pray. Amen. Every once in a while, some of you ask for me to give jokes and some of you may complain from time to time for my jokes. But as we read about this love story of Adam and Eve, most of you know, I could imagine maybe some of the pickup lines that Adam might have given Eve. One might have been, you know, Eve, 
You're the only one for me. Or it might be, look around, baby, all the other guys are just animals. (laughs) Or maybe even the classic, I already feel like you're a part of me. You complete me. I think that's the Jerry Maguire line that they got that from. But I want to give you some observations, and then we're going to look at what the scripture means, and then we'll put some application to it. But I want to give you some simple observations as we read this very, you know, familiar portion of scripture. I don't think I'll give you any observations that are new or or something that's been hidden for 2,000 years, but maybe something, again, to give us a spark and to help us to rethink here as we talk about the creation of marriage. God looks and says that it's not good for man to be alone. Remember, this is on the sixth day. It's not the end of the sixth day. It is in the midst of this. And Adam's mandate, you might remember, was to work and keep the garden that God had placed him in. It was also to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue and have dominion over all of creation. Yet in reality, there's no way that Adam could accomplish this task by himself. It's very difficult to be fruitful and multiply with just one person. God recognizes Adam's need for a companion, one to help him. So God decides that he will make a helper fit for Adam. One that corresponds to his need as a human. For God looks and sees that an animal could not help him. The plants would not be able to help him. No other creation that God has created is able to come and help Adam fulfill his mandate. And God uses the animals here to demonstrate to Adam, who was probably unaware of his need, by bringing the animals for Adam to observe them, to look at them, and to give them names. In accomplishing this task, Adam shows intelligence and creativity. As you can imagine, the animals coming before him, all the land and the, and the air animal, or air animals, you understand what I'm saying. Just take my robisms and write them down for a book later to be published. This depiction of Adam's first task is really a far cry from what many scientists and how other peoples have detect, depicted what Adam was like or what first man was like. He was able to speak and observe and give names and to identify. Again, as I said, Adam was probably unaware of his need for companionship. And I think as he sees the animals as they were created after their kind, he recognizes, hey, wait a second, something's wrong here. The lions, the giraffes, the alligators, the birds, they all have come in pairs. But who is with me? He's probably unaware of his incompleteness to do the task that God has assigned him. Yet, in naming the animals, he probably became very conscious of his need for one. For as is written, for Adam, the scripture says, there was not found a helper fit for him. And we know this uh, logically and innately because man can never come to a conclusion that he needs a woman all by himself. Does he? He always needs somebody else to tell him that. 
But what's amazing here as we look and we continue to observe, if you've been taking notes on how God has been displaying His character, we come with some ways in which as we look at this story, as God displays His character. The first one I see is God displays His providence as He creates a helper for Adam in verse 21. For he said, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman. The God provided a helper for him. It wasn't Adam, go find someone to help you. God looked and said, this is a task. This is a job. This is a God job. So God displays once again his providence by giving to Adam what he needed to help him with his mandate. A helper is one who supports us in our task of doing the will of God. We see this as the word helper here in Genesis is the same word used in the promise of the Holy Spirit who was to come following Jesus' ascension in John chapter 4, when Jesus told the disciples, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Again, This helper was more than just some type of co-worker, but it was someone to help us to do the task that God has assigned. Just as the Holy Spirit is someone who comes to help us accomplish the mandate that God has given us to be fruitful and multiply as we share the gospel in Matthew chapter 28. But not only does God display His providence by providing a helper for Him, But God also displays his mercy here as he creates a helper that complements him and doesn't compete against him. And this is very important, especially in today's culture. In other words, he didn't create someone to compete and to see who's better at leading and who's better at doing the job, but one in which they're fit together. Adam's first recorded words in verse 23 We're not a primeval grunt, as some would imagine a a first man doing, but a a word of poetry. Look at verse uh, 23. For as he just looks at God's mercy, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, made to complement the man. Matthew Henry a famous pastor in the 17th or 18th century in the 1700s, writes poetically that of this verse, that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. God shows his mercy by creating a helper in which they work together and not to compete. But we also see God displays his judgment in verse 24. In verse 24, he creates a union that was to be unbreakable. So God displays his judgment in creating a union, man and woman, 
That was to be unbreakable. Look at verse 24. For he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. Man is to cleave. It's depicting that faithfulness, permanence, and loyalty is the responsibility on the part of man. Hence why I believe Scripture says, Husbands love your wives. I'm of the opinion that if we love our wives as God has called us to, that the woman naturally will cleave to her husband and lead. And his leading, excuse me, I should say. So God displays his judgment and says, what I put together, it's of one union. But also we see God's holiness on display. God displays his holiness in creating a union that was pure. Look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. John MacArthur writing concerning this verse says, With no knowledge of evil before the fall, even nakedness was shameless and innocent. They found their complete gratification in the joy of their one union and their service to God. What God made in the union when it's naked and, and, and naked and um, naked and not ashamed is a holiness. Again, we see that that's been perverted and twisted through the fall. But yet God's holiness is on display. Keith Krell in his commentary concerning this passage writes that the naked condition of Adam and Eve does not just describe their unclothed physical appearance. And what he writes here is very interesting. So please pay attention if you please. It says it also refers to the physical and psychological oneness and transparency that existed in their relationship. Physically, they were naked. They shared their bodies with each other openly. Physical, physic, now I'm not going to be able to say it. Psychology, or physio, somebody say it for me. Thank you. Get that on the record for me. They were not ashamed. They hid nothing from each other. And I think that's so important. For isn't that one of the things that prevents many marriages? They were at ease with one another without any fear of exploitation for evil. He writes, transparency should increase with trust, commitment, and friendship. It involves communicating what we know, we think, and feel, and are with the persons or persons we choose. A transparent person is an open and a vulnerable person. So in the creation of woman, in the creation of marriage here, we see that God displays His providence, His mercy, His judgment, and His holiness. But now I want to go to tell us what this teaches us about marriage. And if you're taking notes, you may want this, because what happens is that you and I have gotten our ideals about marriage from many different sources. You might have gotten it from your parents or from your grandparents, but unfortunately many times we come from broken families or families that are not intact and who have not have exhibited a biblical marriage. Some of us have might have gotten our idea of marriage from media or from other sources, from friends, but again, we see that the marriage that's presented and that we see even today in good marriages many times fall short 
of the biblical standard. And so as we look at this portion of what marriage is and the creation of it, we must understand what is it that God is saying about marriage. And for those of you who are married, please be alert and understand this. Evaluate your marriage, not by some therapist and psychologist or some other type of counselor, but according to the Word of God. If you're here today and you're not married, then this is one of the things that you need to say that this is what we need to look for. This is how we define it. For marriage is of God and is created for a special purpose. So what does this passage teach us about marriage? I want to give you six things. The first one is that God is the one who instituted marriage. All marriages are important. My marriage, your marriage, and the marriage of our friends, our neighbors, and our fellow church members. And this is important because you need to understand, and you've heard me say this to you either from the pulpit or maybe in counseling sessions, is that Satan is seeking to destroy your marriage. Thank you. He seeks to destroy your marriages, your marriages of your family, the marriages of your friend. And there's probably all of us are touched by that. That's part of our fallen state. And let's make no mistake that Satan always, always wants to destroy, pervert, and twist whatever God has created. Has he not? It's all he can do. Or he tries to mimic it and imitate it. Let's make no mistake that marriage is not a civil or a governmental institution. It is God who instituted marriage. So all marriages are important. Let me say this too because we have been guilty of this. If this is your second or third marriage, if you're in the midst of that or in a remarriage, that marriage itself is important. And also, one in which God can bless and cause you to thrive. And I say that only because there was a time in which many churches have made divorce and remarriage the second unforgivable sin. And that's not the case. All marriages are instituted by God. For He instituted it. It's his creation. Number two, God intended marriage to be monogamous. He created one man and one woman. Woman complements the man. The third point is God intended marriage to be heterosexual. Marriage is of one man and one woman. He created a, a fit. There was a need. And the only way was to have two genders. The fourth thing we see that this passage teaches us about marriage is that marriage involves a physical union. And all the men said, Amen. In the context of marriage, sex should be enjoyed to its fullest. Today the world wishes to believe that they have invented sex and that God only seeks to prevent it, to mute it, to make it unholy. However, what this passage teaches us is that a sex apart from God is not what it could or should be. And fifthly, the husband was to be the head of the wife. 
And here's where we start getting into more deeper territory that others want to fight. God created Adam before Eve, and He created Eve for Adam, not vice versa. Hence why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It was the mandate that God gave to man first. Man is God's representative mediator here on earth. But he says that you cannot do it alone. You need a helper. So woman is a special um, creation of God to fulfill that mandate. God intends the husband to be the head of the home. Does not mean that the woman is inadequate or insufficient, but that God has placed the responsibility, listen to this men, but he's replaced the responsibility and the accountability on Adam and hence the man, the husband of the household. And then number six, the sixth thing that we see about marriage is that a woman can be a complete person without bearing children. Let me say that again because this gets lost many times. That a woman can be complete without bearing children. Her basic function as marriage is to help and complement her husband not to bear children. Now we're going to see that's a purpose of marriage, but it's not the only purpose. The complement was to come to rule and subdue, to work and keep. To be fruitful and multiply. So you may ask, well, what's the purpose of marriage? I want to give you just three today. And here's where we're moving now to understanding what the passage tells us, what it told us. Now I want to move and tell you how it applies to you and I. The three purposes of marriage that I think is important for us to realize is one, it's to accomplish the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to have children. It's also to be to subdue and have dominion over the earth. It's to fulfill God's mandate for us to represent Him on the earth. So there is a purpose in which bearing children is something that is honorable, is something that is pleasing to God. To subdue and to have dominion on the earth is something that God has called us to do. Not to exploit it. Not to use it for greed. Again, that's the fallen result of the mandate, but God has called us to do so. So the first one is to be fruitful and to multiply, to have children. Lead to the second. I kind of led that in this one. But the second one is to accomplish the mandate to subdue and have dominion. So first he says be fruitful and multiply. Then he says to subdue and have dominion. Why do we need a husband and wife? Why did it take a man and a wife? Why did God look and say, man needs a helper? Basically, because two people working together in a complement union are much stronger than one working itself alone. We know this. For two people together are stronger in protection, for encouragement, for splitting of the work and the task. There's some of us that are better at one thing than the another. It's to offset the weakness of the man or to offset the weakness of the woman. It's to draw on each other's strengths. And basically, that companionship actually makes two people more effective 
and not less than one. Hence why I tell many people when they come to me for marriage counseling, one of the things that I would share with them is that, yeah, marriage is a good thing. And if you're really looking at whether or not you should, be, you should marry, is marriage is you will come to the decision that we are, better, we are better to serve God together than I can alone. And I think that's a good rule of thumb for marriage. I can serve God and fulfill what God has called me to, get to do better with her than I can by myself. That's what God has called us to do. Be fruitful, be multiplied, subdue and have dominion. The third purpose of marriage is one that Dustin read to us early, earlier. Marriage was a picture of the church and its relationship to Christ. Marriage was actually a way for us to get a word picture or to understand Jesus and his bride, the church. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5 where he says, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your church. Why? Because that's the relationship of the church to Jesus Christ. Many times we may say, well, the church is like marriage. In reality, even though marriage was given first, it's reverse. Because marriage is like the church. Yeah, it can be difficult at times. It can be hard. There may be times when we're struggling, but yet God has called us to be Christ's bride. And so God created marriage in order that when God had instituted the church there in the New Testament times, He says, here's what the church is. You know it. You've had thousands of years of practice. You have the examples in Scripture. This is what the church... Hence why He says it's a mystery. Just as the husband and wife become one union, and that's very hard to understand how that happens, so too does the church and the believer, or the believer in Christ, become one union. So there's three purposes of marriages. To accomplish the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. To accomplish the mandate to subdue and have dominion. And also in order so that you and I can understand what the church is all about. Now I want to give you a word of challenge and encouragement. Because if we talk about marriage, marriage is under attack. It's been under attack for some years now. But you and I need to understand that marriage has an important role to play, not only in the plan of God, but also in society. So here's a word of challenge and encouragement. I hope I showed with you so far why God created marriage, the purpose of marriage, what it signifies, and what God, how God has displayed himself in creating it. I want to talk to those of you who are single for a moment. Can I have your attention? Some of you might have been passing or glazing out at this time, but this is what I want to tell you. If you're single here today, here's what I want you to do and understand. Marriage is good and desirable. Amen? Marriage is good and desirable. And you may say, well, wait a second. My experience with marriage is awful. My parents, 
my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents. I come from broken homes. No one has ever been faithful. All I've experienced are broken marriages. Hence why you have people putting off marriages longer and longer. But let me tell you, marriage is good and desirable. So young man, let me tell you, pursue marriage. Pursue it with all your hearts. Pursue it until God shows you that He's given you a different calling. Now, should everyone get married? Somebody might ask. Well, no, the Bible says that there is a spiritual gift that's called singleness. I thank God that He does not give me that spiritual gift. But 1 Corinthians, we saw this in our study, that there is a gift where God has called some men and women to singleness. But yet again, that is a separate plan there. His plan is to pursue marriage. So let me tell you, man, pursue marriage. Get off the games. Quit postponing um, adulthood until your 30s and your 40s. Pursue it. Go after it. God has called you not to fulfill your own desires and your own selfishness, but He's given you a mandate. Reading an article here in the USA Today, it says declines in weddings are likely to set, be likely to set in towards the end of the decade. Even though the number of young adults is increasing because of the nation's ongoing retreat, from marriage. The report notes that one-third of marriages in the United States are actually remarriages. The new forecast predicts the marriage rate to may remain at the record low of 6.8 marriages per 1,000 population for 2013. And it notes that the rate was just 7.3 in 2007, so it's going down again. In addition, it reports that when these couples take their first vows, they'll probably be older than brides and grooms in the past. By 2015, the average age at first marriage will rise to 29.2 for men and 27.1 for women, up from 28.2 and 26.1. What's going on? People are deserting marriage. They do not see that it's for them. But God says, men, be fruitful, multiply, fulfill it. Now that may go contrary to what many of you may believe. Many times you say, well, you shouldn't get married until you have enough money, until you have enough house, until you can afford it. But let me ask you, when is that going to happen in this world? If I could just use my son Brandon, you know, we were talking about when he was thinking of marriage. I said, do you love her? Yes. How long have you been dating? It's been four years. Then marry her. Do you feel like you can serve God better together than you can alone? Yes. Then why put it off? We've scared young people into not believing in marriage or thinking that it's important. And then we expect people who are married for four to five years, ten years, to be pure. That's the second, third one I have here. For singles, be pure. Wait for marriage. We wonder why is it that so many are, are living together and, and just sleeping together. Why? Because we've created this environment where you wait longer and longer and you've got to fight that impurity longer and, and it makes it difficult and tougher. 
So those that you're single today, and I know we have several, pursue marriage. It's a good and honorable thing that God has created. Stay pure. And marry someone that's dedicated for doing to doing the will of God. Just don't marry someone just to marry. Marriage is not a financial decision. It's not some type of career move. But it's something that, 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 uh, that says, I trust in what God has created. So marry someone that will help you fulfill the will of God in your life. Now that's those of you that are, stru- that are in single. But now I want to talk for a moment to those that are married. And I want to talk to you, those that have been married for a long time. By the way, let's see, the, the, how long have you been married? I know that, Jesse, 40 years? 43? Anyone longer than 43? I think Reggie, no, I think they're, are Reggie and them that close? They might be that close. I think they're with the children. I've got 26. 26, anyone around there? You get 34? Praise God. Now let me talk to you, those that are married. What does this mean for you and I? So instead of just being something that's some type of historical record, this has real world meaning for you and I. So whether you've been married for a long time or happy, or you've been married for a long time and you're miserable, or whatever, here's what the marriage is for you, whether it's good or you're struggling. Number one, love your spouse. This is what the Bible says, love your spouse. Do not let divorce be spoken in your, in your house. Let divorce not be an option. Too many times couples will just say that. Don and I made a decision years and years ago. Divorce will never be spoken in the, meet of, in, the, in the moment of heat or any other type of battle. Divorce is not an option. Why? Because God says, let man be put, man and woman are to be together. Also, be satisfied with your spouse. I think that's the struggle. Because to be honest, that's what Satan is doing now. That's what pornography does. That's what harlequin romance does. It creates a dissatisfaction with your spouse. You don't measure up to expectations. But the Bible says, not to be graphic, but to be satisfied, men, with your wife. He says, love the wife, the woman of your youth. Be satisfied with her. Recognize that your spouse is a gift from God to accomplish your mission. Again, Keith Krell writes concerning marriage. This is important. I think it's a good word for those of us that are in marriage. He says it's essential for every husband and wife to thankfully receive the mate that God has given us as His best provision for us. We need to thankfully receive the mate that God has given us. And many times that may be include a mate that we struggle with. It may be a mate that doesn't know Christ. It may be a mate that we are at enmity with. He says to do so, we must know and trust God's goodness. So when you are unsatisfied with your wife, what you're in reality saying is, God, I don't trust that you are good. I don't believe you know what's best for me. 
Our mates' differences are good things God brings to us that he will use as tools to shape us into the people he wants us to be. Failure to accept one's mate as a good gift from a loving God leads to many problems in marriage and it frustrates God's purpose and plan for marriage. It expresses rejection of God and his provision for one's life. It also demonstrates unbelief, disobedience, and displeasure, listen to this, with God's character. Your mate needs your unconditional acceptance. So many times when I'm dealing with people in marriage problems, they just want to complain about their spouse. But let me tell you, you're complaining to the wrong person about the wrong thing. Because in reality, you're actually saying, God is not good and wise. That's what you're saying. You can say amen. You can say oh me. But this is what scripture tells us. Now, in speaking to those that are single and to those that are in marriage, even if you're in a remarriage, you may say, what do I do then? The same thing. Love your spouse. See that spouse as a gift from God. Realize that God gives blessing and restoration and forgiveness and continue to love your spouse as God has given her to you and him to you. Now I want to take a moment because we need to talk about the elephant that's in all the Christian churches. We must talk about it because to be honest, what I'm about to say here is the defining uh, issue in our culture today. Gay marriage. What does this passage have to say about gay marriage? And as I know as I speak to you, many of you say, well, Rob, you're speaking to the choir. I'm against it. You may not know why, but you're against it. Some of you, especially those of you that are younger, you may say, wait a second. What's wrong with gay marriage? What difference does it really make? I mean, why can't I love who I want to love? Is not love from God? And God wouldn't want me to love, wouldn't give me love for someone that wasn't right. Or maybe you're here and you're like my wife, my family, and I. We are touched. We have people in our lives that are gay and that are looking forward to marriage. So, what is the scripture? How does it help us inform us of this very political, cultural, religion, um, spiritual issue? Because it's one that is dividing the nation, is it not? It's dividing families. It's dividing churches. Just reading of one church this week. Down the street over here on Taft, they were promoting the fact that they hired their first woman pastor. Now, I'm not going to speak on that issue. We'll speak on that another one. But in the article, they were promoting themselves and saying, look how good we are, look how well we're advancing. But yet in the same thing, they also made the note that they are now a welcoming congregation to anyone. And usually those are code words to say that we accept gay marriage. We accept all, all lifestyles. So how are we to speak of this as Christians? Let me, I, I, I put it up, let me go right to it, Okay. What this passage tells us to think of, how it, in, how it informs our worldview, is that we must first say that there is no such thing 
as gay marriage. Let me say it again, because I'm not sure you got me. There is no such thing as gay marriage. How do I know that? Because here the Bible tells us that God created marriage. And marriage is heterosexual. It's one man, one woman. It's a helper fit for him to fulfill his mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue and have dominion, to work and to keep, to guard and protect, to cultivate, excuse me, and protect. So there's no such thing as gay marriage. If two people in, in California, and we should hear the um, decision of the Supreme Court either this week or next, well, this week, on DOMA, the, the National Defense of Marriage Act and Proposition 8, if California and even the government, if they were to say that gay marriage is now a reality and it's legal, they can call it whatever they want. It doesn't make a marriage. And you say, well, what would you do if two married people came in and they were gay? And they were struggling, would you give them marriage counsel? And I would say, no. How can I counsel a marriage that's non-existent? What if someone came in and said, hey, I accepted Christ, but now I'm married to, to this man. Two men came in and say, we're married. Can we get divorced? What does the Bible say? I'd say, your marriage never existed in the eyes of God. Why? Because there's no such thing as gay marriage. God created marriage, and let me tell you this, only God can redefine it. And see, that's what's happening today. Is that those that are for gay marriage want to re redefine marriage, but yet it's not up to them to redefine what God has created. Couldn't they create something else that God didn't do? Oh, sure, go ahead. Does it make it right? But yet God is the one who has created marriage. And hence, they can try to redefine it, but let me tell you, as Christians, we must stand against it, even if it costs us. And let me tell you, it may cost you a friend, a family, a child. To be honest, in the world that we're living in today, in the environment, one day this very tape of this message could probably strip this church of its non-exempt and its non-profit status. We could lose all. And what will be our declaration there? There's no such thing as gay marriage. Why? Because marriage is created by God for a specific person. And let me tell you, that stance, that belief, will cost you, and we've seen it lately in the political realm, to declare yourself as one for traditional marriage will exclude you from all public discourse. That's what's happening today. And let me share this with you very quickly about gay marriage. It's not a civil rights issue. It is smart of what they've done is what they've done is they've said, this is not so much about religion or government. What they've done is they've redefined the issue as being a civil rights. And to be honest, if I think just civil rights, yeah, we shouldn't deny people civil rights. Who wants to do that? Nobody wants to do that. Let me share with you, unfortunately, 
You and I have to go by the word of God, not some interpretation of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or Supreme Court laws. That's the difficult thing for you and I. Is when Scripture speaks, we must be aware of what it says. John Smoot, in his article, Children Need Our Marriage Tradition, he writes in the Witherspoons Institute website, The Public Discourse, he says, Marriage has been between males and females in virtually every society in the history of mankind, regardless of time, geography, race, tribe, social structure, religion, or absence of religion even in communist countries, even in societies like ancient Greece that did not attach a stigma to homosexual behavior, people of the same sex never married. This is not a broadside against homosexuality. We're speaking of marriage. He says, as for those times when homosexual activity was apparently widespread and accepted, those period tells us the culture matters. It's unlikely that many or more people were genetically same-sex attracted in ancient Greece than they are today, if genetics plays any role. But because the ancient Greeks understood that it would be impossible of the, or excuse me, impossible for any same-sex relationship to be a marriage, their acceptance of same-sex relationships never translated into changing a fundamental institute of their society. Long words. Let me close it. For he says, the essence of marriage has always been incorporated a gender difference, male and female. And the purpose has been to bring men and women together for the life for children. All the arguments for a new normal takes us away from gender distinctions or confuse gender with something else. And here we have a public discourse of what the Bible says, whether they understand the biblical implications. Is that nature itself tells us that marriage is something that's between a man and a woman. So you may ask, Rob, that's all good, but you know what? You're stepping on some toes here. I don't think I'm ready to stand where you stand. What did Jesus have to say about it? Is this, is this story even credible? Is it truly, historically uh, true? Or is it just a myth? Is it just a, a, a way in which we try to tell our story that we really don't know? Well, you've bared with me for a long time, and I'll ask for just one more moment as you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 19. For let me speak the words of Christ. As the Apostle Matthew has recorded them for us. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees are coming up to Jesus. And they're trying to test Him and trick Him as they always did. And they're asking him a question, is it lawful to divorce anyone's wife for any cause? And Jesus' answer is very telling here. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered them by saying, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What did Jesus say? Jesus said marriage was instituted and created by God. It is one man, it is one female. They are to be brought together and they become one union that cannot be torn apart. So for even for those who love Jesus, Jesus had something to say about gay marriage today. He had something to say for your marriage even today. And he has something to say for those of you who are single. God created a wonderful love story. And in that love story, it points to God's love for his bride, the church. It was at the end of the sixth day that God saw all that he had made, including marriage, and said it was very good. This includes the creation of marriage. If there's one thing that you and I can learn from Genesis 1 and 2, it's this. God created and prepared the world for our good. God desires and expects us to enjoy all that is created for us, including the gift of marriage. Let me lead you with this. Here's the application. As God displays His character in the creation of marriage, as God displays His character of providence, holiness, judgment and mercy in the creation of marriage, let you and I respond in faith and obedience by holding marriage as good, honorable, holy, and desirable, while fulfilling our roles as male and female as He has defined. Father, I bring before you this tough word, and I pray that you would take it and plant it in our heart, let it grow, Let us walk from here and do the difficult work of now saying, what does this mean for me? I thank you for the creation of marriage. Lord, I thank you for that helper that was made for me. And Lord, let us see marriage as a good and honorable thing. And Lord, I pray that even no matter the cost, that we would stand for marriage in the way that you've created it and the way that you've designed it for the purpose that you've created it for. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.